This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on streaming services, sometimes even on uh, tactile physical media, and compare and contrast it to movies from the past. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and journalist. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris, and you can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook. I'm a multimedia journalist with the Saltwire Network and the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. And you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Now, today we're doing something a little different, as is our want. We're celebrating the career of the late, great Sidney Poitier, Sir Sidney Poitier, who was Hollywood's first African-American leading man, the first to win the Best Actor Awards at the Oscars. He passed away in early January at the age of 94, and we'll be talking about a number of his movies, the big hits, and the hidden gems, coming up on Lends Me Your Ears. Hi, and welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that usually takes a look at something fairly recent and then compares it to stuff from the past. But uh, as we have done in the past, occasionally we'll take a look at a specific subject uh, that is near and dear to our hearts. And uh, in this case, uh, we're looking at the career of Sidney Poitier. And uh, his passing a couple of weeks ago is certainly a, a major loss. He was 94. He lived a long, healthy, and, and uh, very influential life. We were lucky to have him around while we did. Uh, and uh, so we're going to celebrate that career and, and the, the strides that he made in, uh, in changing the movie business in a lot of different ways uh, with uh, some, some pretty remarkable films and performances over the course of his career. Now, uh, we actually mentioned his very first film in our recent film noir episode uh, because uh, there were a bunch of Fox film noirs on Criterion, and one of those films was No Way Out. Now, we're not going to talk about that in detail because we already did, but it was an astonishing uh, feature film debut for Sidney Poitier, but it says a lot about the uh, conditions in Hollywood at the time. This was 1950. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was ostensibly the co-star, you know, the second male lead with, uh, Richard Widmark, uh, giving a wonderfully naturalistic performance in that film. And yet he was not one of the top billed actors, uh, in the credits on the screen. I don't know what the movie posters looked like, but it seemed like, uh, he was given short shrift in the credits considering that he is, you know, essentially the character who's driving the story, uh, of that film. And so he obviously came into Hollywood in a system that needed radical change, uh, which he played a major part in uh, affecting over the next uh, couple of decades. Um, and, uh, and we're going to look at some of those key moments. Uh, some of his most famous films we may not be touching on because they've been talked about quite a bit in the last couple of weeks, but uh, but there's a, a broad and, and quite... Uh, you know, quite uh, exper- well, not experimental, but audacious career that uh, that he embarked on, and uh, I, I, I get the feeling that he never made a film that he didn't have some sort of personal interest um, in making that he didn't think was going to advance his career and advance the cause of of filmmaking and of uh, black actors in uh, Hollywood and commercial films. I hope that's true, Stephen. I don't know. We didn't obviously. He has a huge you know, we didn't body get of work. Everything. We didn't get everything. Oh, I did watch the trailer for The Long Ships, which didn't look. It's like a Viking epic. Yeah, it looks a little odd. It looks a little odd, though. I mean, you know, you know me. I'm a fan of the Thirteenth Warrior, which it kind of reminded me of a little bit. Uh, but it, 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 you know, it's from the '60s. It looks very over the top. So we didn't watch that. But I, I would recommend anybody check out that trailer because it's something to see. 
see. Uh, you watched Blackboard Jungle from 1955, which is a prominent uh, film in his filmography, uh, though it's an ensemble, I understand. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it, it's uh, directed by Richard Brooks and uh, from a screenplay by Evan Hunter, who would go on to write things like The Birds and a lot of uh, famous crime novels, uh, the 57th Precinct series, uh, you know, quite an established crime writer and also a screenwriter. And, uh, but this is based on his own experiences as a high school teacher at, uh, I guess, an inner city school. And uh, in this case, Sidney Poitier is one of the students uh, at this school that's known for having a lot of juvenile delinquents uh, in, in the uh, student population. And Glenn Ford plays the, uh, the veteran, uh, the ex-GI who's become a teacher who has to kind of tame these uh, wild youths. And it, it's famous as being kind of one of the first rock and roll movies. It, it, it famously uh, is one of the first films to have a rock and roll song on the soundtrack, and that's Rock Around the Clock. Um, by uh, Bill Haley and the Comets, and uh, it's uh, it's pretty uh, you know it's 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 pretty entertaining and pretty uh, forward for its time and some of the stuff that it deals with and that it addresses, uh, considering it's what 1955 I think, and uh, I, a lot has been said about this film, but Sidney Poitier is is terrific in it. He's he's of course probably ten years too old to play a teenager at this point in his career, but then so is Vic Morrow, who I think is 28, and he's playing a juvenile delinquent teenager as well. So it's just, you know, one of those things that would become a, kind of a joke in movies set in high schools, even up until, say, Greece, um, you know, a couple of decades later. But, uh, but Poitier plays a character who, uh, you know, Glenn Ford is trying to figure out. Uh, he can't tell if he's in with the young hoodlums or if he's got his own path to, uh, to uh, follow. And, and so that's sort of the more interesting storyline in the film. I and mean, Vic Morrow is a hood and he's a hood from start to finish where Sidney Poitier's character has a lot of depth and a lot of, uh, a lot of things to reveal over the course of the film. And he's, he's quite good here, uh, working within the system of the film as, um, you know, uh, he's still in a predominantly white high school and, uh, there's a handful of, of black students, uh, and he kind of stands out as, as one who, um, has uh, has more going on in his life than than just uh, you know carrying a switchblade and attacking people in alleys and some of the things that all the other students do and it's and it's 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 an entertaining uh, portrayal of the kind of high school hellscape that would get returned to in films like Class of 1984 and uh, Rock and Roll High School and things like that but here here they're taking the the subject matter pretty seriously and glenn ford is great uh it, it's a great performance from him an actor i'm kind of hot and cold on uh but here he seems pretty invested in his character as his teacher who wants to do good but is uh, really up against it with some of the students yeah that genre of like the rough school and the you know possibly inspirational teacher is something that comes up again and again and also in in hollywood uh, certainly to sir with love which was one of uh, yes. poitier's big hits from the late 60s has that kind of thing going on in it but uh but yeah it's it, there are subgenres and subgenres we could go on all day we could do a whole episode on that <laughs> on probably high school films yeah, yeah. lean on me and yeah you know, maybe that's something for the future to revisit. deliver yeah there's all tons of films uh so we did watch a raisin in the sun from 1961 this is directed by daniel petrie of course uh we've mentioned him before nova scotian born canadian filmmaker i believe um he's yeah he's the bay boy from glace bay right? he made a later made a film about his uh his younger years starring Kiefer Sutherland that uh, if you can find it, it's it's not easy to find these days, but worth tracking down. Yeah. Uh, this is based on a stage play by Lorraine Hansberry. The play was the first Broadway play from a black female playwright. I was reading up about Miss Hansberry, who died only at 35. She had a short 
career, but what a career and a life she had. There is a biopic I'd like to see about her. She sounds really interesting. Uh, so the film version used the stage cast from Broadway, um, and the original play was nominated for Tony Awards. The, the film was nominated for Oscars. Uh, the title... Uh, Raising the Sun comes from a poem um, by Langston Hughes, and it's about dreams. Uh, and uh, the, the the film is about, I mean, you know, dreams deferred and, and the African-American experience in the United States and the American dream. It's about the younger family who live in a three-room apartment in Chicago. They're anticipating a $10,000 check for of life insurance following the death of the father, the grandfather, the patriarch of the family. Uh, and $10,000 in 1960, I looked this up, is about 95 grand, 90 to 95 grand now. So more money than they'd ever seen in their lives. Uh, so Poitier plays Walter. He's the quote unquote man of the house. The He wants to take the money invested in a liquor store to have something to call his own, a bit of pride in, in his profession. There's the matriarch played by Claudia McNeil. Lena, she wants to buy a house for the family and get out of the apartment. Ruth, Walter's wife, played by Ruby Dee. Um, she, can see, she works and works and works and doesn't get any recognition, and it turns out that she's pregnant. And Walter has a sister, uh, Venethia, played by Diana Sands, who's a quite a modern woman. She's for me, was the most interesting character in the story. She's busy finding her identity and dating at least a couple of different men, including a Nigerian immigrant and a college fella, played by Lou Gossett Jr., um, I found this to be so modern and eye-opening uh, for a film and a, and a story, you know, told in the late 50s, early 60s. It's shocking how it, it felt like it was almost made today, but about that period of time. Uh, and I, I love the scenes. And as, as I mentioned, I really love the scenes with the sister. I think they were some of the best in the movie where she's talking about how God is an idea and it's no different than any other idea worth debating. And then her her mother slaps her and tells her tells her you know in this house God we we believe in God that was a really great great moment there's 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 so much going on here about culture about dreams about illusions about what a better life means and about independence and for them of course and at the time the suburbs and integration in the suburbs meant the, the slice of the American dream that they were missing by being in the inner city. And I, of course, that feels a little dated now, but as a symbol, it totally still makes sense that the idea of having their own house, their, everyone have their own rooms, their, you know, their own bathroom is, is a huge deal. And uh, yeah, it's a fascinating film to watch. I was, I so enjoyed it. I, I really did too. It's, it's full of life. It's full of energy. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it feels timely today. Uh, you know, but, people trying to get out of apartment living and, and own a place of their own, uh, which is still a struggle to this day for so many people. And, and you know, I guess uh, at the time it came out there, the even, well, the play, I guess, you know, producers didn't necessarily have a lot of faith in the material and whether or not it would attract an audience. And I think the same thing was uh, true of the film. And yet, uh, and, and yet both were, were very successful. And, and uh, you know, Sidney Poitier scored a, a, an Oscar nomination for his role here. Um, as as Walter, the dreamer, who uh, kind of puts his faith in in the wrong places, uh, but it's you know there's some there's some truly uh, eye opening stuff here. Uh, certainly, when his wife Ruth, uh, played, wonderfully played by Ruby D, you know, is pregnant and she's not sure if she wants to keep the the child or not. And that's not the sort of thing that people talked about in 1963 or when this film came out. Uh, and and I don't think they directly reference abortion, but it's certainly hinted at in broad strokes that, that people watching uh, would have picked up on. And that's just not a topic that was turning up in uh, major motion pictures uh, at that time. And then, uh, you know, when they, 
encounter the, the lone white character is played by John Fiedler, who's like the community representative from the neighborhood where they have uh, put their down payment on their, their new home. And he's trying to talk them out of moving there, you know, for community reasons. And that, that whole scene is, is just astounding how he's trying to put a positive spin on racism. And it's just the, the writing and the performance is, is just astounding, especially when it's coming out of the mouth of John Fiedler, who most people may recognize as the voice of Piglet in the Disney Winnie the Pooh cartoons. And, and right. he- hearing that voice talk about, you know, the reasons why, you know, white families shouldn't be mixing with black families. Uh, you know, again, just a, a jaw-dropping scene that, that uh, has every bit the impact now than it did then. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think the only issue I ever took with this movie, I mean, I really, really loved it, but there are some elements that I consider sort of stagey that they didn't open up for, uh, I mean, for good reasons. Obviously, this is about claustrophobia and about people being stuck together in close quarters, but uh, I did feel like there was stuff in the third act that felt a little um, gnashing of teeth and there was, uh, it was, it was operatic almost uh, that felt maybe a little too much. But overall, I mean, I was so impressed by the material, and I and no wonder it was remounted in 2004 on Broadway and and won more Tonys. Like it was just this is a big big story, and was turned into a musical, right? Called Raisin. It's called Raisin! Exclamation point! Because of course, you know, when it's got an exclamation point on the end, you know it's a musical. Uh, which uh, I, I've seen the album, the LP. I've never seen a production of it, but I've seen the LP in soundtrack bins uh, for years and years and years. One of these days, I'll have to check it out. On um, whatever faults it has, you know, maybe. You can chalk them out to Daniel Petrie being a fairly new director or having just come out of television, working in, in television quite a bit. And I think he was just maybe working on that kind of TV drama kind of scale to a certain degree, but uh, and which is and was probably trying to stick to a pretty tight budget to make sure this film got made. Uh, but uh, but the material certainly uh, surpasses any of those limitations for sure. Uh, now. Uh, Sidney Poitier won his Best Actor Award for Lilies of the Field from 1963. Now, you've seen the film, Stephen. What do you want to say about uh, about this picture? Well, I, I saw it years ago, and I, I always thought it was the cute film about, you know, Sidney Poitier and a bunch of German nuns out in the American desert, uh, you know, as he tries to help them, you know, build a chapel uh, when they've got absolutely no money. And the nuns' power of persuasion to keep them on the job and to persuade other people in the community to kind of do their bit to make sure it happens. And it, it is kind of cute. I mean, the, the nuns are, you know, kind of charming and comedic, I guess, you know, with their fractured English and German accents and everything. Uh, but uh, but there's a lot more going on there. It's it's uh, directed by Ralph Nelson, with whom uh, Poitier would uh, work again on a couple more films, uh, which we'll be talking about later in the show. Uh, you know, they, they obviously had a good working relationship. Um, this is another film where uh, the star and uh, director had to kind of put up some of their own money to make sure the film got completed. Uh, it was shot in two weeks, and uh, and doesn't doesn't feel hurried or anything like that. It just uh, it sticks to one one or two basic locations. And and Poitier is very charming. He, you know, he's able to do kind of this light comedy. It doesn't doesn't get really intense or brooding or anything like that. There, but there you know there there's the suggestion that that uh, you know maybe some people treat these uh, nuns as outsiders, which is why he and they bond so well. But, uh, but he gives a great performance as, as, as someone who sees the value in their mission and wants to help them out and maybe have them help him help him out in some way as well. And, and, uh, you know, he, he won the Oscar for this. It's, it's, a uh, it's a terrific role. It, it's not, uh, it's not a preachy film, but it does have a message about community and, and helping others, uh, even if they're not necessarily from the same background as you. And, 
you know, that has that universality that uh, I think he was looking for in a lot of his films. Yeah. Um, now, Poitier, he uh, had, I think, maybe, I think it's pretty much understood to be his greatest success in 1967 at the moment where where it felt like uh, his interest in civil rights, he's a civil rights icon in many respects, uh, you know, corresponded with the audience's interest in the films that he was choosing, certainly in the heat of the night, which we won't really be talking about much, but it's certainly maybe his best known film, his best known role, Mr. Tibbs, you know, this detective, uh, uh, you know, in, in the South um, trying to, you know, it's, it's a thriller. Um, and, and certainly a lot of people, I mean, I think it's the one that most people pointed at when they, when he passed to remember how, what a great uh, screen presence he was. Uh, I mentioned already to serve with love. That was another Another big hit where he played a teacher in uh, East End London. Um, we also watched Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, another big hit from 1967, another Oscar winner, not for him, but for Catherine Hepburn. And uh, it's a big slice of liberalism uh, that uh, looks pretty dusty 55 years on. But you know what? It is still worth seeing, I think, and talking about, like what it's intending to do, what it does, what it fails at doing. And I think largely worth seeing for the performances. Uh, Poitier plays a young man. Well, he's, he's about in his mid-30s at the time who's fallen in love with a 23-year-old woman uh, who is white. And uh, she brings him home to meet her parents in upper, you know, middle-class San Francisco. And her parents are played by Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. It's Tracy in his final role. And uh, the performances are really what make this film work. It's a, it's a, there's a lot of lovely moments between these the performers and there's actually quite a bit of humor as well that I that some of which actually has aged okay. Uh, what doesn't work? Well, I think there's a lot of problems with <laughs> yes. sexism in this film and a, a patriarchal attitude that I really I found hard like it just made my head spin. Um, there's there's class issues as well that the film is completely ignoring and there's just stuff that just feels out of date. But I can appreciate the uh, Stanley uh, Kramer who who directed. I can pre- appreciate his his. Uh, I guess, ambitions to try to have something to say about changing American mores. Well, that's the Stanley Kramer way, isn't it? He always has something to say. <laughs> well, except and, for mad, 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 mad world. But otherwise, you're right. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that was just a... <laughs> Uh, we'll assume he had some sort of lapse um, <laughs> there, but I mean, I, I enjoy Mad, 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 Mad World, but, you know, it's really a really hard film to talk anyone else into enjoying. That's for sure. But... Um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I, I think people were kind of coming down on this film when it came out, uh, mm. it, you know, because some of the attitudes were probably fairly dated then. Uh, and it's it is an interesting thing to watch now. I mean, it's from this. Tr- it's, it's often put as a trilogy of his uh, Sidney Poitier's nineteen sixty seven films because he Two Sir with Love, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and In the Heat of the Night all came out in the same year, which is just an amazing. Uh, you know, just amazing hat trick for him. This this film is is probably the most dated of the bunch, and and you're right. The performances are what kind of keep this worth watching. Uh, you know, Spencer Tracy, you know, was having health issues on set, and you know they had to work around things to you know ensure that his performance was strong in in the final. Um, cut but you know he could only work for a couple hours a day and that kind of thing and uh it's 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 certainly a, a great uh way for him to go out uh on his career he was he passed away like two weeks after he walked off of the set for the last time uh but yeah it, it is it is a mixed bag uh Catherine Houghton who plays the daughter that uh Sidney Poitier is engaged to is kind of a problem because I, I find 
everybody seems to be up to speed acting wise except for her she seems to i mean she's she's very bright and engaging she's not necessarily a bad actor but she seems to be like she came out of a like a frankie and annette beach movie or something like that <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it is about and and certainly other people have singled her out as one of the uh, weak links in, in this film but you know she apparently was um uh, Catherine hepburn's niece yes that's she, how she kind of got the gig uh and i mean physically of course she looks a lot like her it makes a lot of sense in terms of like oh wow that sh- totally could be her daughter but i i'm i'm with you in terms of like the 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 uh, textures of her performance if i if you want to use a word like that are not she doesn't have a lot else going on except that like um intensity and and ambition and and like brightness yeah she it's kind of like marlo thomas on that girl or something it's like almost a 60s sitcom kind of uh you know and she's she's appealing and she's but it feels like some more nuance was needed in that role and and i think maybe some of the writing of her part as well um you know could have used some beefing up but uh but over overall i think it's still a film uh that's of its time that is it can still be highly entertaining today. Right, here we are again, Lends Me Your Ears, talking about the films of Sidney Poitier, who passed away, sadly, uh, earlier this month. And uh, we mentioned Stanley Kramer as a director um, of uh, I Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And he directed The Defiant Ones from 1958. This is, uh, as we mentioned, he's kind of a... A director of message movies, the one ex- one exception I mentioned, but Inherit the Wind, Judgment at Nuremberg, these are the kind of pictures he he made. Um, this um, uh, this was written by Nedrick Young, originally as Nathan E. Douglas and Harold Jacob Smith, and it's about a chain gang uh, being transferred in a truck across the American South. Uh, the truck runs off the road in the rain, and two convicts make a run for it. They're Johnny Joker Jackson, played by Tony Curtis, and Noah, played by Sidney Poitier. And they're, you know, obviously a white man and a black man, where the white guy is a racist Southerner and the black man isn't. Uh, they're chained together, and they're going to make it, you know, if they're going to make it they're gonna to have to cooperate including dealing with an angry lynch mob uh this is uh i mean there's obviously a built-in drama and tension here that i think is fascinating i think it's a it's a great premise um i did feel like tony curtis was just entirely miscast i especially in the first act i thought he was just terrible uh he it's almost like he's doing an eric roberts impersonation 25 <laughs> years before eric roberts was in the pope of greenwich village uh but as he goes along he becomes more vulnerable and then he you know he gets a chance to show a little more nuance um the character i enjoyed most probably max the sheriff played by theodore uh, uh, bickel he's uh, got an odd accent he apparently born in austria great character and the posse assembles um one of the guys has a portable radio and is always playing music in the background and all the scenes that they're in it makes <laughs> yes. it gives it kind of a party vibe which Play, is really playing weird. that faux hollywood rock and roll of the 50s yes <laughs> we want to have something that Sounds like youth culture, but isn't actually rock and roll. <laughs> so it's like sort of a big band approximating. And it's, yeah. It's, it's pretty cheesy. Yeah, but yeah, there so. it is. And, it, and the, the guy with the radio is Carl Alfalfa Switzer from the Little Rascals right. uh, shorts. So. Right. Um, and there's Claude Akins who shows up for a scene. I always liked him. And I like uh, Kara Williams. She plays um, the, this woman who they come across in a, in a, in a shack and she's desperate to get out. And uh, she gets interested in Tony Curtis. Uh, which I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense uh, because he's obviously a criminal type. But then you know, some uh, she has she has her reasons. Uh, oh, he fills her head with dreams. Yes, you know, we'll escape to New Orleans and see the Mardi Gras and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But there is there's a terrible scene where they're talking and she loosens her hair and it kind of comes up behind her and it just and he says, 
don't go away. And he puts his hand behind <laughs> her head, like maybe he's going to pull her to him and the camera just lingers on his hand. It's it's just like, oh, it's just a creepy shot. It just <laughs> Speaking of things that haven't aged well. Um, but, you know, as far as an allegory for racial tolerance goes, it's about as heavy handed as it comes. And, and some people consider The Defiant Ones a, a classic of sorts. I'm not sure how it got this reputation. I didn't particularly think it was great. I, I enjoyed it uh, on the basic level of its story. It's, it's message is, is, is you're right, it, it is pretty obvious and heavy handed, but, um, but I think Poitier is very good as a guy who, uh, you know, was, was put on the chain gang for pretty spurious reasons and has every reason to want to escape and, and get out of it. And, you know, Tony Curtis gives every indication that he is possibly, you know, capable of reform. So you, you do end up kind of rooting for these guys. Uh, I guess there were a number of different actors in in line for the Tony Curtis role uh, that Kramer just couldn't nail down for the part. You know, I think at one point originally he wanted Brando, uh, and then Brando had not so great memories of working with Kramer on the Wild One, so he didn't uh, sign up. And I forget who else was in in line for for this uh, role, but uh, you know, it, it is not hard to imagine maybe some other actors uh, from that time who uh, might have been better suited but it was it was a huge hit it was hugely influential there's a looney tunes cartoon called defighting ones where <laughs> sylvester the cat and is uh, handcuffed to a bulldog and they escape when the uh, the animal catcher's van crashes <laughs> <laughs> and and they have to learn to get along to to escape um so that that tells you how much uh, influence uh, this film had but uh it, it it's worth seeing but uh again uh, it's you know you'll be kind of shocked at uh, you know the the how much it telegraphs its uh, its message yeah you know watching all these movies with Sidney Poitier in a variety of roles it really brought home to me a couple of things well a few things about his talent like he was he had incredible magnetism on the screen but he always delivered a kind of elegance that uh that it didn't matter what he was playing what character he was playing even if he was roles where he had to be a little more playful or a little more goofy which he could do he could do light but he was still had this kind of like cool elegance mm-hmm. about him that was really wonderful um and that kind of um, presence was very much a part of his role in Paris Blues from 1961. This was one of the real gems I was so glad to see. Directed by Martin Ritt, um, it stars Paul Newman as Ram and Sidney Poitier as Eddie, and they're American jazz musicians living in Paris. It's winter, but that's when two American tourists come for a visit because it's cheaper. Um, Connie, played by Diane Carroll, and Lillian, played by Joanne Woodward. Um, Now, Ram has big dreams of being a composer as well as a player. Uh, in dark underground clubs. So he's kind of a jerk about it to everyone around him. With <laughs> maybe the exception of his guitarist, Gypsy, who is kind of a coke fiend, who he kind of helps score, but he's trying to help him go straight. There's this whole subplot about drug abuse with this one character. Um, but of course, the musicians and these visiting tourists, these ladies hit it off, and Lillian, the Woodward character, is a lot more forward than Ram expects, and they pretty much jump into bed the first night and spend some time wandering around the romantic spots to all the bop and jazzy score. As she talks about being a divorcee and this fault feels very modern um and connie's connected to her family and to her politics she doesn't agree with eddie's reasoning that's the uh the poitier character um and uh um the diane carroll character uh she's arguing with him because she feels like he's ignoring his his responsibility to to his people and living in paris where he doesn't feel the kind of pressure of the american racist system uh and so that's it makes for a lot of interesting conversations all against an incredible 
incredible travelogue of Paris streets and the Seine and all the sights, you know. Everything looks a little, you know, in, in, the, in the 50s when this was shot, late 50s or early 60s, you know, Paris was a lot more grungy than it is now. <laughs> and, uh, and you really see it on the screen there. You feel like some of those buildings haven't been repaired since the war. And I, I really enjoyed Paris Blues. Yeah, there are a few jarring moments where they're clearly on, on a studio set or you know, a back lot and it switches from Paris to, you know, Hollywood or wherever they film some of those other scenes. But but for the most part, it does does have that you are there kind of feeling about it. And of course, the the, the stars couldn't be more appealing. But but I do enjoy that undercurrent of, of Diane Carroll trying to pull uh, Sidney Poitier's uh, musician back to the States. You know, the, the, the reasons that he decided that he doesn't want to live there are the very reasons why he should be there uh-huh. fighting, fighting the fight. And it's that, that pull. And, you know, certainly probably based in some ways on the, the lives of people like Josephine Baker as Sidney Bechet, um, you know, American artists who, you know, you know, because they could sit sit anywhere they liked for a meal without getting clubbed, I think is is what he says at some point. You know, or um, uh, you know, referencing you know the 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 lunch counter protests and that kind of thing. Um, and it's yeah, it's that that weird push and pull. It's like you we found this place where we're accepted and we can do what we want and I can pursue my art and uh, they love it and uh, why would I go back? And it's like. Yeah, but the reasons why you don't want to go back are the reasons why you should go back. And, uh, I, you know, I appreciate that push and pull, although I'm kind of on his side. I would, you know, <laughs> rather stay in Paris myself. But, of course, I'm not feeling that fo- push and pull. And I think it does make that palpable, that that internal struggle uh, yeah. is quite strong here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the Poitier-Carroll romance doesn't get as much screen time as uh, the Paul Newman, um, Joanne Woodward characters do. Uh, but what we do get is a cameo from Louis Armstrong, who's playing a jazz great, a friend of Rams, who's playing a gig in town. I had no idea Armstrong actually acted in movies, and he's not in this much, but it's so great to see him. There's a terrific scene where he walks into the cellar club where where our heroes are, are playing their music, and playing his trumpet with a full band and challenges everyone to solo. And it's a testament to the actor's skill that they deliver the illusion of being as good as Armstrong and his players. It is an awesome scene. Although it's it's so funny. Well, Louis Armstrong does he does act in a few things. He's in high society with Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby, amongst other things. But but uh, you know, he's had a handful of roles over the years and he's in Hello Dolly, you know, basically playing himself as he generally does. Um, but uh you know, it made me think of like, well, this is the early '60s. By this time, like, real jazz aficionados are probably into Miles Davis and 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 uh, John Coltrane and and Thelonious Monk, and, and that that you know having uh, you know having Louis Armstrong walk in is like I don't know, like having Mike Love walk into a club or something. But then I realized, well, it's it's Paris and. You know, they they still revered the the great jazz musicians of yore, and certainly Dizzy Gillespie stood up for Louis Armstrong, saying, you know, no him, no me. Um, but I thought, you know, if they had like a Dizzy Gillespie, maybe that stuff would have been more effective because that would be the music that a young composer musician would be would be more into. But uh, but Louis Armstrong is probably a bigger draw, certainly uh, in the trailers and a, a better known personality at that time. But I thought I thought it funny that uh, 
that he was the epitome of hipness as far as this movie went. But but it's still it's a treat to see him and then that that scene that you reference with uh, with him challenging the bands to, to to solo with his band members is, is pretty great. It absolutely is, and yeah, and, and Poitier is awesome in it, and so is Paul Newman, who once again he's drawn to these characters that are never really interested in being straight ahead heroes. All of his characters at this time are conflicted, angry, and resentful in all of these movies, from HUD to uh, you know Cool Hand Luke. It's just anyway, it's a Another great role for him, too. Uh, so we watched The Bedford Incident from 1965. This is one I hadn't even heard of before, directed by James B. Harris, where it starts with Poitier and Martin Balsam dropped via helicopter onto the heaving deck of a U.S. destroyer in rough seas. Immediately, we're in restricted spaces where the camera is wheeling around actors, a lot of choreography by in crisp black and white cinematography. It's an impressive looking film shot by Gilbert Taylor, who end up, ended up shooting Star Wars, Flash Gordon and Repulsion, as well as A Hard Day's Night. So <laughs> this is a pretty talented uh, director of photography. So the story basically is uh, Poache plays Ben Munsford, a journalist on board to get a story. He's been allowed access to this ship. Balsam is a lieutenant commander who is the medical officer, new medical officer, and they meet with Captain Eric Finlander. He's a hard-ass Navy captain played by Richard Widmark again. Uh, so that's another role for, you know, another moment for these two actors to work together. He's a man who works no fools and also on board sort of weirdly is a German, a former U-boat commander as a consultant. <laughs> yes, because um, he's with NATO now. Yeah, so that's the way that works out. And it, it's kind of about the the crux of this sort of Cold War. They're hunting a submarine, a Soviet submarine, and they're trying to track it. And it's about the power struggles on the bridge with the young crew who are very loyal to their to their commander. But, uh, you know, it's you really get a – you start to wonder, like, all right, well, are we – is Widmark's character supposed to be the hero of the thing? Are we supposed to – relate to him or or is he just he's he's so merciless in terms of his the way he treats his crew uh the doctor thinks he might be dangerous um and so this the film doesn't balance tip into a particular dogma at least until the end and then you're like oh (laughs) oh i see what this is all about Yeah, Stephen, what did you make of it? Yeah, it's, well, it's, you know, it's it's like Moby Dick in the, the modern Navy, basically, with the, the Russian submarine substituting for the Great White Whale. And uh, and I thought uh, Widmark was terrific as the captain, who at times is kind of likable, and is, he seems like a very practical and capable commander, but then, uh, you know, he just, uh, the, the, he's just, the screws are on a little bit too tight, it seems, and, uh, and he walks a pretty fine line it's so funny because you know considering we saw him completely unhinged in no way out also with Poitier, um which i mentioned at the top of the show here it's 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 a terrific performance and you know and the scenes with him and Poitier and balsam you know where they're kind of matching wits are are pretty gripping and the, the film itself is you know it's it all takes place on the ship but it's uh in confined quarters but it it it, it doesn't really uh it doesn't lag anywhere I, I was completely taken by this film from start to finish um it does have a bit of a kind of a dr strange lovey and tone about it in some ways not satiric but but certainly the the plot material and then i realized that james b harris who directed it produced three stanley kubrick films not strange love but but three other of his films and so you know maybe he had this idea for something strange lovey and i guess um but played straight and uh it's it's certainly uh 
is a surprising discovery. Uh, you know, I, I saw it mentioned somebody, you know, some Facebook film group, uh, Sidney Poitier thread where people were naming their favorite films of his, you know, basically the day that he, his passing was announced. And, uh, this one came up and somebody quite strongly recommended this film. And I just thought, you know, this is one of those films that I used to see on the video store shelf or whatever, and just never got around to seeing. And, and, uh, I feel bad. I put it off for so long because it is, it's a really great tense thriller with, uh, with a wonderful, wonderful cast. You wait, basically what you just said there, Stephen is like the crux of our podcast. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much why we do this. And, uh, and of course, uh, it was all, it was also a treat to see a certain young Donald Sutherland show up for one scene yeah. towards the start of the film because he was he was in England at the time that this was being made, just kind of odd jobbing around London and you know picking up one off roles in TV shows and movies. So he turns up with barely any dialogue, and you but you spot him right away. It's he's unmistakable. It was pretty pretty amazing to see him there. Yeah, and also Canadian actor Shane Rimmer is in it in a oh, very yeah. small role. He's one of those hell is that guy supporting actors who was in everything from Doctor Strange Love, as you mentioned that film, yeah. uh, three different James Bond films, including The Spy Who Loved Me, and three Superman films, as well as going up to you know out of Africa, Batman Begins, um, and you know this is an actor who actually he has an autobiography. So I might think. Of picking that one up yeah and the voice of the main commander of the thunderbirds the animated or not animated but the super marionation uh, puppet yeah. adventure show of the 60s which looks so creepy today um listen you saw a couple of films that i didn't see and you want to talk a little bit about duel at diablo a 1966 western and maybe buck and the preacher yeah i just want to briefly uh, mention these uh that uh, duel diablo is, is this the dvd for it has been sitting in my to watch pile for literally years uh you know because it's a it's a ralph nelson um again who directed uh, poitier in lilies of the field um and he teams him with uh with james garner and basically they have to uh escort a wagon load of ammunition to a fort um through apache territory and it's it's a very standard western and it feels like poitier may have been a last minute addition to the cast because he plays a, a former cavalry horse breaker he's he's like an ex-sergeant who's speciality was finding wild horses and taming them and putting them into service and he's called on to this mission um uh you know which seems like kind of a, a kind of a suicide mission and uh the, the role could be played by anybody the, the race is not a factor in the role uh and maybe that's what attracted him to it but it also feels like it could have been written for anybody um the fact that it doesn't come up at all is kind of odd um uh, but at the same time, he still, you know, gets to do a lot of action stuff. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's very compelling as, as this horse wrangler. He, he looks great on a horse and, and handling, handling the horses. I'm sure he put a lot of work into that. But, uh, the interesting thing about this is that a, a few years later, he decided to put his own stamp on the Western and make one where race is an issue. And, uh, not just, uh, in terms of, uh, black settlers in the old West, but also in terms of their relationship with, uh, with native Americans in the West and, and their ability to make uh, peace between themselves while a, a uh, basically a posse of white racists are trying to get these black settlers to go back to Louisiana. They're basically freed slaves who have left the plantation and have gone looking for better things out West. Uh, but these basically, you know, former Confederate plantation owners and workers are trying to get them to go back uh, to make sure they still run the plantation. And it's, a, it's actually a pretty amazing uh, contrast between all these different uh, political ideas and, uh, and basically uh, 
Uh, Sidney Poitier directs. He took over the direction from another man. What's um, sorry, Stephen? You didn't mention the name of the oh, film. Buck, Buck and the Preacher. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> when, I, thought, when, I, I thought I did mention it. Well, when, uh, maybe you did, and I missed it. Well, when, when when did it come out? Uh, 1972. So, so okay. just just about four years after Duel at Diablo. Uh, but he clearly had an issue with the fact that uh, in films like Duel at Diablo, uh, the, you know, the the First Nations like the Apaches are just anonymous uh, rifle fodder. You know, they're just there to be a menace attacking groups and get wiped out and uh, you know he here he 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 made them heroes he made them uh real characters and uh as well as uh underlining the fact that that uh that black americans were a huge part of the settlement of the west something that had not really been reflected in many westerns up to this point so it's and and the preacher is played by Harry Belafonte who was was a good friend of his at that point and would continue to be throughout uh, throughout his life and and he has a great role as kind of a con man preacher who's just he's kind of a he plays a like a baptist preacher but he's also kind of a grifter and and so they have a really interesting dynamic because they don't really trust each other until they have to kind of thing and that's i mean that's a familiar kind of that's almost like 48 hours in a way that kind of buddy trope but uh it's it's put to good use here and they have great chemistry together because they obviously have that great relationship and they get to kind of parry at each other to uh, to great effect so um, i I watched it on apple have it uh, for rent but uh, i think it's on a couple different platforms and it's 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 a really surprising film to watch uh you know 50 years later oh man i'm so sorry i missed that one i'll have to add it to the list hi i'm Lindsay cameron wilson host of the food podcast but do you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears for our third and final installment looking at the long uh, and important and also very entertaining career of Sidney Poitier, who passed away recently at the age of 94. And uh, at, at the end of the last segment, I mentioned Buck and the Preacher, which is where he stepped into the director's role. Uh, there, it was out of necessity. He wasn't happy with the uh, the director that was working on that film, but he obviously got a yen for it because he went on to direct several more films, including uh, a film that's probably not as well known in his filmography, and that is A Warm December, where he plays uh, kind of a crusading doctor um, from America who comes to England, uh, you know, with his uh, daughter to... Um, to basically go on vacation and ride motorbikes. And, and, and he's, he's like a motocross racer in his spare time, yet he s- sets up uh, clinics in disadvantaged neighborhoods and that kind of thing. So, uh, and, and he just happens to have this chance encounter on the street with a young woman named Catherine Oswandu, played by Esther Anderson, uh, a British actor who did not do a ton after this. Um, Karsten, you informed me that she went on to become a photographer after this. She- I think that's right. And make documentaries. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I did a little bit of reading up on her because I found her so compelling as a performer in this film. She's great here. And maybe just because the the roles that uh, she thought were worthy weren't coming along and she had better things to do. It's, it's uh, a shame, but it sounds like she had a fulfilling life and career after this, but uh, maybe because she's been in so little, she's a really refreshing presence here as the niece of a Nigerian ambassador who uh, also, as it turns out, happens to have a uh, quite serious illness, uh, which of course um, 
um, Dr. Younger being a doctor <laughs> spots fairly early on in the proceedings. And uh, thankfully it, it doesn't become like love story disease of the week kind of fair. It's, it's, uh, that's certainly, um, an issue in the story, but really it's about the, this kind of more Roman holiday, uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn, Gregory Peck kind of relationship where she's got, uh, this world that she's from this, uh, this certain, uh, duty to her country and, and that, that she, uh, she can't turn her back on. And he, of course he's got this very important career back in the States that he can't turn his back on. So it's, it's this kind of star crossed, uh, love, um, that, uh, isn't really meant to be, but, uh, but, you know, for a brief moment, she gets to have some happiness with this guy and, and, and his daughter's pretty cute as well. So, uh, but it's, it's an interesting film because parts of it are, are very comedic and then parts of it are very serious. And then there's also a thriller aspect because when we meet her, she's being followed by some menacing looking dudes around the streets of London and we think she's in danger. Um, and, uh, I, I really don't want to say too much more about that, but, but it starts off, we think it's going to be a political thriller, but then it becomes this romance with uh, comedic aspects and then very dramatic aspects. And it, it does kind of jump around a little bit in style but because uh porche and anderson are so charming together and 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 then you have these weird digressions into motocross writing and stuff and and uh just you know early 70s london uh it, it's really quite enjoyable if you can track this one down yeah i absolutely agree with everything you said in fact i don't think i have too much to add Stephen. uh i did enjoy like a lot of the um uh, aspects where they brought in these African cultural elements. There's groups of singers singing in Swahili that we get to in- appreciate. Uh, I also like that when um, when our our leads uh, sort of hook up uh, at they do at the uh, embassy of the African country that she's from. I guess a fictionalized Af- African country, and uh, and then he has to basically leave the building. She she basically abandons him in the morning. She's like, oh, I've got to go off and do something. And then he's stuck there, and he has to try to leave the building, which of course you know she runs. In, and then he runs into all these people who are like at work. What are you doing here? And what are you doing in here, right? Because <laughs> it's all secure and everything. Yeah, I really enjoyed all of that. Um, you know, and it does, yeah, as you say, it's romantic, it's melodramatic in places that there's lots of tears in the end. But I didn't find it maudlin. I think the performances are really great. There's a lot of really fun dialogue. I, at one point he says, girl, blowing people's minds must be your hobby. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, but yeah, Warm December. And and it is, you know, one of his films that he directed. And he went on to star much less frequently in films in the 70s and 80s and direct much more, a bunch of comedies, including Stir Crazy, which I don't think a lot of people realize that he made that film, the Gene Wilder. Yeah, because uh, he's not in it, I don't think. Pryor. I don't even think he has a cameo in that. It's been years since I've seen it. Maybe he does, but. Yeah, I don't think uh, he does. I have not returned to that film. He also made a trio of comedies uh, in the mid-70s that, uh he co-stars with a certain comedian of note uh, that uh, we will not discuss. <laughs> yeah, no, we're not going to, we can get into that. Um, so. You know, which is unfortunate because those films were very popular at the time and, and very good urban comedies uh, that uh, are now incredibly hard to watch because of his co-star. So. Yeah. So we're going to move on then to The Wilby Conspiracy from 1975. This is one he didn't direct, but he stars in. It's directed by Ralph Nelson. And uh, it's shot in Kenya. And uh, aside from establishing shots in Cape Town and Johannesburg, it's actually set in apartheid South Africa. Poache plays Shaq Twala. He's a black radical who's just been released from Robben Island, where, of course, uh, Mandela spent 27 years. Um, and... Uh, 
uh, Twyla's, Twyla's uh, lawyer is uh, Rena Van Kirk, who is a, a white woman played by Prunella G. She gets him off by invoking a United Nations Human Rights Agreement. After the trial, they meet up with her boyfriend, Jim Keough, played by Michael Caine, who is an engineer basically vacationing, and he has gotten together with this lawyer, and they're planning to celebrate this big success, this release, but on the road, on the street, they're stopped by the police uh, in Cape Town. And since Twala doesn't have his papers yet, he just got out of prison. They arrest him. His lawyer intervenes. She's knocked down on the sidewalk and Keo steps in and there's a fight. And it's all a little awkward and, and seems implausible. But it, it really works as an inciting incident because after that, they are on the run. And the whole the whole like first, I guess half of the film is basically this this buddy comedy road movie political thriller uh it does a lot of different things as they try to get uh, out of the country uh, through uh one of uh, twala's associates in um in johannesburg and uh and then oh and then there's major horn from boss the bureau of state security played by the constantly smoking nicole williamson he's kind of like <laughs> this far more racist tommy lee jones to their you know pair of fugitives yes. <laughs> um and i've really enjoy the picture. The dynamic between Kane and Poache is terrific. There's great chemistry. A lot of humor comes from Kane, who's not particularly happy to be on this ride, trying to find a way out of the country. And Poache plays the grim realist, having dealt with the injustices of the apartheid regime for years. Uh, you know, this is active racism, not just the systemic or subtext. Uh, and then there's a, a the issue of lost diamonds comes into the story. All of a sudden, it's a heist thriller. <laughs> uh, masquerading as a buddy comedy slash racial drama we get Saheed Jaffrey, who is great, and Persis Kambada for Star Trek fans out there. They'll recognize her, but if she has hair, um, yeah. you know. Yeah, I think this is her first uh, English-speaking role, I believe. So okay. Star Trek, the motion picture would come along, I think, three years later. But, yeah, a couple uh, of years later. Yeah, yeah. But she's terrific here. Yeah, and uh, there, you know, and then she finds Twala irresistible when they're stuck together in an enclosed space. It's got a lot of surprises, and I was, I just, you know, it's got, it's got some cheese. It doesn't all work, but if, for a lost, you know, uh, performance by Poitier and uh, and Michael Caine, of course, who's been so many movies, it's it's really something worth seeking out. Yeah, and this was released by a major studio. I think it was an MGM or United Artists film. I can't remember which, but uh, and it just seems remarkable to think back to when this came out in 1975, and that there wouldn't have been a lot of films at the time where apartheid was a key plot point uh, and that you know a lot of people going to the movies may have been completely really unaware of the true nature of the uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa and what it was like and this film like you know the second they have to stop for that police check you have you know a pretty good insight into how brutal it was it's 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 shock it would have been i mean it seems shocking now it would have been even more shocking i think in 1975 but you know where the when the police officer slaps Sidney Poitier in the backseat of the car. You're just like, what? What is going on? And, but of course, that sort of thing was happening all the time. And it's, you know, and it makes you think about the street checks that were happening here in, in, our, in our neck of the woods as well and some of the, uh, some of the attitudes and, uh, of uh, law enforcement towards uh, the black community and, and how not that far removed it is from some of the, uh, some of the apartheid uh, policies and, wow. and, and you know how they were carried out and uh so this film's it's a lot of it's still very potent uh you know even even though 
you know, apartheid is ostensibly a thing of the past. Uh, it's it still seems like the recent past, even though this film is you know over forty years old at this point. But uh, you know, I found this a, a pretty powerful and engaging film. And you're you're right; it does jump the rails a little bit in terms of style from from time to time as as different elements get introduced. But uh, I you know I found it compelling all the way. Yeah. Now. Uh Poitier took a break from starring in films for a number of years. I think his last film in like was in the late 70s. And then he, he was drawn back to a thriller called Shoot to Kill in the UK called Deadly Pursuit, directed by Roger Spottiswoode uh, or Wood. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's co-written. The script is co-written by Daniel Petrie Jr., the son of the Nova Scotian-born director of A Raisin in the Sun, uh, who is a, a writer and producer. And I wonder if maybe there was a familial connection that was part of the reason that uh, that uh, Poitier, uh, I mean, this is just conjecture, but you know, what might have brought him back to the big screen. So the story of Shoot to Kill is basically uh, a diamond merchant's wife is held hostage and the diamond merchant must go and raid his own store in San Francisco. But uh, he's not careful. He is, he's caught. The FBI are alerted. The bad guy kills a couple of innocents and then gets away with the diamond. So the FBI, who was made to look a fool, he's Warren Stanton, played by Poitier. And a tip suggests the killer is trying to get across the border into Canada. Uh, and that he might have joined a group of fly fishers who are hiking into the mountains. So we get Stanton, the fish-out-of-water, you know, city uh, lawman, joining a hotshot tracker, Jonathan Knox, played by Tom Berenger, to try to find this group. And then you've got the group, and it's a bit like Deliverance, this out-of-shape middle-aged <laughs> white fellas on an adventure. Um, and since we've, we don't get to see the killer's face... To start with, we don't know which of these dudes is the bad guy, and I love that bit of narrative mystery. Uh, about an hour in, it tips its hat, which is too bad, because I like the humor that comes from time to time uh, you know, in the film, and I like not knowing. And of course, they cast some bad guy actors to be in the fishing group, including uh, Andrew Robinson. Um, from Dirty Harry. From Dirty Harry, yeah, yeah, and from, um, well, many things, but yeah. uh, usually plays plays villains. Uh, and of course, um, uh, Clancy Brown, whose voice will be familiar familiar to a lot of folks and, and he does a lot of voice work but he was also you know a, a guard in the Shawshank Redemption and he was the he was the Kurgan in Highlander which I think may be his great you know villainous role um, yeah I mean it's a fun straightforward film it's got some fun comedy moments um, not you know the BC Rockies certainly look gorgeous the location cinematography is amazing um, but you know it's otherwise it's mostly notable for the cast yeah I, I you know if they hadn't they could have cut out the the Vancouver sort of finale, the chase scene and the ferry scene at the very end of the film and just kept it in the wilderness. And I think it would have probably been a better film, if but probably more expensive to make. I don't know. Um, now, before we wrap up, Sneakers from 1992, directed by Phil Alden Robinson, who's best known for his work directing Phil, Field of Dreams, I think, um, where it's an ensemble piece, another sort of thriller, but a comedy thriller. And uh, starring Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, River Phoenix, David Strathairn, and Sidney Poitier. It's an awesome cast for a fun, I think, ahead-of-its-time kind of hacker thriller. What did you make of it, Steve? Yeah, co-written by Walter F. Parks, who wrote War Games. So that explains why all the computer stuff feels so, even though it's, you know, from 30 years ago, which is hard to imagine now, but because um, I saw this when it came out. But uh, all the computer stuff for the time feels pretty legit for the most part, whereas computer stuff often doesn't in a lot of older films. Uh, so, you know, the, the stakes 
the, the high stakes feel legit, you know, when a box that can break into any website or, or computer system in the world comes onto the market and they, uh, basically the team has to track it down. Uh, you know, I, it, it felt pretty legit and it was great to see this kind of forward thinking kind of cyber thriller at a time when it was, was kind of an unusual thing to see in films. And, uh, and it's, it, it just, uh, yeah, it, it has that kind of thriller heist comedy kind of feel. It feels like maybe one of those heist movies from the sixties, but with the, with the computer theme and, and, and an amazing cast and, uh, you know, Poche is like an ex CIA guy who's kind of part of this consortium put together by Redford and, and, and uh, everybody clicks together really well. And R- River Phoenix, who, you know, maybe not one of his best known roles, but he's great here as well. Yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, and Mary McDonald is really good. And of course, Ben Kingsley. I don't know if I mentioned him. He's 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 awesome. Uh, it's it's a wonderful film. And I think it is well remembered, uh, even though it predates the Internet in some respects. Like it it still has, as you say, that tech thriller aspect, but it, with a very light touch. Well, that's it for this edition of Lens Me Your Ears. I hope you enjoyed this look at the filmography of Sidney Poitier. And, uh, you know, as, as we learned, you pretty much can't go wrong with any of his films. There's always something to recommend them, either in his performance or perhaps his direction if he's behind the camera. And, and certainly uh, a, a legend that, uh, that did change a lot of things about uh, casting of black actors in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, for that, he's, he's certainly revered. Um, you know, and then his humanitarian stuff on, as well, uh, beyond the realm of film, you know, he's... He, he, he definitely left a mark in a way that uh, not many people get to do, and we're happy that he was around when he was. My name is Stephen Cook, and you can reach me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Hi, yeah, my name's Karsten Knox. I have a, a blog called Flaw in the Iris, and that's what my Twitter account is named, Flaw in the Iris. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook or on Twitter uh, at our uh, show name. And, uh, of course, thanks, as always, to CKDU for the use of the production facilities and airing us every other Tuesday, and everyone at Village Sound who makes the show sound so great. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.